This is It Was a Thing on TV. Spoiler number one is Dr. Lee Franz. It stinks. What is going on? <laughs> what is going on? Episode 30, Submission 149. Hey Vince, what are we talking about this show? The XFL aired from February to late April of 2001, and it aired on NBC, TNN, and UPN. So, guys, when football season ends after the Super Bowl, we we get so bummed because it's like we're not going to have any football for, what, like, until... Eight months? uh, Seven months? Well, well, I mean, even, even if you look at it from a, a bigger perspective, the draft generally doesn't happen till uh, mid to late April. So, at worst, you may have about a two and a half month lag. Yeah. So what do, what do you do here? Well, sometimes in the past we have some leagues that have operated in the spring. Now, originally, guys, we were going to do an episode on alternative football leagues. But because of certain events with our subject, we just had to give this subject its own episode. Oh, and by the way, we are going to do an episode on AAF and USFL and World Football League and, and NFL. UFL. That, that's all coming down the road, yes. But we're going to focus just on the XFL today. Yes. To get to the XFL, you gotta know about two people Vince McMahon and Dick Ebersole and well Vince McMahon we all know he bought the WWF from his father in the early 80s he broke the rules of the wrestling business he took his northeastern promotion into a national phenomenon with guys like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and Andre the Giant and then you have Dick Ebersole who got his start working for Rune Orlidge at ABC And then he left to create Saturday Night Live with Lorne Michaels in 1975. And, of course, he would later go on to become the executive producer of Saturday Night Live in 1981 after Gene Dominion's disastrous season, replacing Lorne Michaels in 1980 to 81. That's another episode. Yeah, Yeah, that's September. Yeah, that's September. We were originally supposed to do that last week, but certain circumstances, understandably, had to push that back. But we'll get to that later. So, Vince and Dick, they met each other back in 1985. Both were impressed with their ability to put on a show. So the two of them would partner in the 80s to create Saturday night's main event for the WWF on NBC, which would periodically replace SNL once every two months. It was a giant hit, and in the process, Dick Ebersole would help Vince with the WWF's television production. And in the process... Improve the production because if you ever watched like a WWF broadcast from like a Madison Square Garden house show in like 1984 or early 85 or whatever, or just watch the first WrestleMania, it's like the camera work is kind of crappy. The television production is not that good. Dick Ebersole helped Vince like improve his television production and just it, it just instantly made it a better show. And they were a great partnership together. And, but unfortunately the 
partnership would come to an end when Dick had to leave Vince to become the president of NBC Sports back in 1989. How did these two men meet each other again, you might ask? Well, how did these had two to... men meet each other? Well, I'm going to get to that. It had to do with the end of the NFL on NBC. Now, the NFL had been on NBC even going all the way back to the mid-60s when they had the rights to the American Football League. But in the 1990s, television rights for the NFL were becoming big dizzes. Fox had bought the NFC rights from CBS for around 3 to $4 billion in 1984. And in that process, it changed the game as far as money for televised sports. And in 1998, Dick decided it wouldn't be worth keeping the rights to the AFC because of the high cost. He wanted about $500 million per year to broadcast the NFL. So the AFC rights went to CBS as they went back to the football business, leaving NBC out of the football business for the first time since the mid-60s. Super Bowl 32 would be their final NFL broadcast for at least six years. Now, originally, guys, NBC tried to form a new football league with Time Warner. I actually just discovered this. Time Warner and NBC were trying to create a alternative league together back in 1989 to 2000. But for whatever reason, the plans didn't work out. So that never happened. So the creation of the league in October of 1999 of the XFL, Vince decides to create the league, figuring there was a drought in sports after the Super Bowl. So he, he figured, well, why not fill that with more football? So Vince and one of his longtime associates in the WWF, Basil DeVito, who was the president of the XFL, they wrote on a notepad a list of rules and what the vision for what the league wanted to be. Vince was a fan of aggression and smash-mouth football, and he wanted the players in his league to have an attitude similar to the wrestlers in the WWF. So that the WWF announced that they would start the league one year from the date on February 3rd, 2001. In the following month, NBC announced that they would be airing the XFL. And not only that, guys, they would be 50-50 partners with the WWF. So when this when so when this all started, guys, what was your feelings about this? Uh, well, I was a fresh-faced kid in college, and I didn't know any better. I mean, this would just be my sort of first five years of being a very serious fan of football. You, you got to remember, Carolina, the the Carolina Panthers had were only in. Only in what their ninth, tenth season? In no, they were one. They would have been like their seventh season or sixth season. Or my, my my mistake. Uh, yeah, but but yeah. I mean, I was young in my fandom, and I was eager to see what this new league had to offer. I uh, was, I was reasonably optimistic. Um, football th that, like you said earlier, sort of fills that void between the Super Bowl and let's even say training camp. I mean, the, the draft is only three days and there really isn't much football between the draft and, and, uh, and training camp, which is in July. So filling that void was exciting, 
but ultimately the player level just it, it wasn't that good i, I mean it, there were nfl retreads and and busts and 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 good college players i mean some of the names and greg and i talked about this earlier some of the names were were you know decent players in college but just just d- didn't uh, make the transition to the NFL that well or, or weren't prepared enough for the NFL. So uh, I, I had I was optimistic about it, but not surprised about its demise. Yeah. I should note, guys, what does the X in the XFL stand for? Officially or unofficially? Officially. Nothing. Correct. It stands for... Absolutely nothing. In fact, when the league was first organized in 1999, it was originally supposed to stand for the Extreme Football League. However, there was already a league in formation at the same time with that name. And so promoters want to make sure that the X did not stand for anything. The other Extreme Football League, which was organized in 1999, actually merged with the Arena Football League's minor league AF2 before ever playing a single game. So the X in XFL is sort of like the S in Harry S. Truman. Yup. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get to the marketing. So NBC has a, has a football league, a brand new football league starting in 2001. But NBC has a problem. They can't, they don't know how to promote this to advertisers. They have no rules. They have no players. They have no team names. So all the all they knew was this was a smash mouth league, but they weren't sure what it was, and they needed six weeks to show the advertisers what the XFL was. So they marketed it around two things. And what were those two things? Probably the WWF connection. Kind of. But they First, they marketed around the cheerleaders. That's right, folks. There were cheerleaders. And not just cheerleaders, but sexy cheerleaders. In fact, they encouraged the cheerleaders to date the players. And that's a big no-no in in other leagues. Yeah. Yes. And not only that, they, they... they, they marketed it around how sexy the cheerleaders were, and they wanted to show how gritty this league was. The XFL, the promos, they had these players avoiding cannonballs. They had them uh, dodging minefields. They were carrying trucks. And what was the biggest thing that they wanted to promote out of this league? The fact that there was no fair catches. So they to demonstrate it, they had a wrecking ball take a player out. Just to show, hey guys, this isn't going to be like the NFL. No, 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 no. We don't have any fair catches in this league. Okay. I'm still stuck on the cheerleaders because it brings back. <laughs> well, no, wait, wait, wait. Chico, you're laughing. You don't know why I'm stuck on this. Um, it just brings back the whole jiggle factor thing that we've been talking about for seemingly like the last like six weeks. Yeah, uh, okay, uh, you know, what's one of the main draws of the XFL? Let's show the cheerleaders. Okay. Well, well, it makes sense, because at the time, the WWF, the Attitude Era, was more like swearing, like people getting pissed off, people beating the crap out of each other, and boobs. Yep, 
that's about right. And this was before uh, D- the Divas era of the, of the WWE, too. So when you talk about boobs, you're basically talking about, you know, their cheerleaders, their escorts. The escorts to talent. Yeah. And by the way, I should mention, they would, they would also, during the game, Brarius, they would have, like, segments on the cheerleaders. Like, this is what I do when I, on my on my work time. But when I'm done with this work time, I'm an XFL cheerleader for, I don't know, the LA extreme or the Birmingham bolts or whatever. There was this one segment I saw in one of the games where they have this, this woman for this cheerleader for the San Francisco demons. I'm a teacher. I teach second grade students. I, I work to make sure that these children have a better tomorrow. But when I'm done teaching, I'm an XFL cheerleader, and the cheerleader bites an apple while Van Halen's Hot for Teacher is playing. I'm like, yeah, that's really great for the parents, huh? They have. It's not necessarily great for just the parents. The teacher herself, she's basically telling everybody she works with and her administration and the entire district, hey, look at me. Here's my side hustle. I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> In the XFL. Especially in the XFL. I think if it was any other league, like the NBA or the NFL, maybe it might be a little more dignified. But since you're talking about the XFL, the the bad boys, if you will, the new person on the block, I don't know how I'd take that if I was uh, working with that teacher or associated with that teacher in any way. And, And Mike would know since he is a teacher. Mm-hmm. And, and also a, a cheerleader in my spare time. <laughs> so the XFL, it was marketed and sold as a thing that nobody had ever seen before. Now, there were there were eight teams in the league. They were limited to 38 players per team. And the XFL paid standardized player salaries. For example, quarterbacks earned $5,000 a week. All other players got $4,500 a week. But do you want to know how much the kickers got? How much did the kickers get? They got $3,500 a week. That's not entirely fair. Well, so, so you're basically getting paid uh, that much money to come in with uh, five seconds left to go and kick a ball. I'm in the wrong yes. field. I'm clearly in the wrong field well i was gonna say that's not necessarily fair because now the the kickers here did do kickoffs right yes i I really think that the kickers are the most important players in the game because they get to sort of decide where the the ball's going to be placed but here's the thing this is the xfl and they didn't have a kickoff we'll get to that later yeah the kickers only made thirty five hundred dollars but here's the thing if you won a game, guess what, guys? You got a bonus of $2,500. That's not insignificant. No, it actually is a good... I like that because it gives the players more of an incentive to win and to play because you're playing for an extra $2,500. So if you're like not a quarterback and a kicker and you're making $4,500 a week, you know, if I win the game, I'm making seven. I'm making seven grand for the week, right? 
And also for a playoff game, it was $7,500 for a playoff win. So, guys, approximately three weeks before the start of the XFL, to show the NFL that the XFL was serious, they were going to fly a blimp over the Oakland Coliseum during an Oakland Raiders playoff game. But here's the problem. The blimp crashed into a seafood restaurant. Ouch. Yes. What do you even say to that? Yeah, I'm going to... Well, what I was going to say is, I I know they're trying to drum up publicity, but you sure as heck know that Roger Goodell or or Paul Tagliabue, whoever was the commissioner at the time, I think it was Tagliabue, they, uh, he certainly would not have let the cameras focus in on this rival league that's being formed. Oh, no. Paul Tagliabue would be like, no, let's not even... It's not even give them the time of day. No. Oh, exactly. You you focus your camera on that blimp, and well, using Vince's phrase, you're fired. You're fired. Okay, so now we now let's get into the uh, the teams and the coaches for the XFL. So I, as you know, as you know, guys, I took I took very serious notes. I took about twenty six pages of notes. I was very prepared for this episode. So we have the Eastern Division. First, you have the Birmingham Blast. Oh, no, 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 wait, I'm sorry. That's not the Birmingham Blast. It's the Birmingham Bolts. Yeah, so so guys, originally the Birmingham team in the XFL was going to be called the Birmingham Blast. But you see, there's a problem with the name Birmingham Blast. Can you take a good reason why? Uh, Probably about six years earlier, there was something that happened in Oklahoma City with their federal building. Well, not well, not only that, but there's also um, a history with Birmingham and church bombings back in the 60s. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You don't want... That's no bueno. Yeah, no, no, no bueno, bueno for sure. Yeah. So, the Birmingham Bolts head coach it was Jerry DiNardo, who you might actually recognize. He's currently in uh, studio analyst for the Big Ten Network. He was the head coach at Vanderbilt and LSU, and after the league, he would go on to coach Indiana for three seasons. And a fun fact, Jerry DiNardo actually owns an Italian restaurant in Bloomington, Indiana. Guys, do you think our friend Chris Lambert has visited that restaurant? Probably a few Probably. times. Yeah, we, ha- we, have to, we have to ask Chris about that one day. Have you, have you been to Jerry DiNardo's restaurant? <laughs> So we have we have the Chicago Enforcers, and uh, here's a here's a name you might recognize, Mike, as their head coach, Ron Meyer. Yes, I've heard of him. Yeah, Ron Meyer notably was the coach at SMU when Eric Dickerson and Craig James were there. By the way, Craig James killed five hookers. Oh God! Oh no! And and of course, you all you all know about the SMU uh, scandal with the play for players. But if, but Ron Meyer did go, uh, coach in the NFL. I think you, I believe he was probably the only of the eight coaches to have at least main NFL experience. He was the head coach of New England from '82 to '84, and the Colts from '86 to '91. He was actually the head coach for the Las Vegas Posse in 1994 during the Canadian Football League's brief American expansion. That makes sense. Yes. So next, we're going to go to the New York, New Jersey hitmen. 
And actually, a, no, a notable name, their general manager, before we get to the head coach, was legendary Dallas Cowboys wide receiver Drew Pearson. Hmm. Yeah, Drew Pearson, of course, most notably remembered for that famous uh, Roger Stahlbach Hail Mary against the Vikings back in 75 at Metropolitan Stadium. I recall it. Okay. So the head coach was uh, Rusty Tillman. He played for the Redskins from 70 to 77. He was a member of the Super Bowl 17 that lost to Miami on special teams. He was a longtime coordinator with the Seahawks from 79 to 94 in various roles. He was the defensive coordinator for Tampa Bay for a year in 95, spent a season as a special teams coordinator in Oakland in 97, was the uh, defensive coordinator for the Colts in Peyton Manning's first season in 98 under Jim Morris Sr. And later after the XFL ended, he served on Mike Tyson his Minnesota Vikings staff on special teams from 2003 to 2005. Okay. He has experience, to say the least. Yes. Next, we go to the Orlando Rage. Their head coach was Galen Hill. Uh, Galen Hill actually was the head coach at the University of Florida for uh, Steve Spurrier from 1984 to 1989. Galen Hill coached in the World League of American Football slash NFL Europe, another future installment, with the Orlando Thunder for a season in 1992. And then he coached with the Rhine Fire from 1995 to 2000. Hill coached in four World Balls, one with the Thunder and and three with the Fire, and won two World Ball titles, and was named Coach of the Year in NFL Europe Three different times in 1992, 1998, and 2000. Wow. Storied career. So, they're, so you know, they're basically going football minds with wrestling guts. Kind of. So now we go to the Western Division. We go to the Las Vegas Outlaws. Their head coach, Jim Kreiner, was a head coach in college for Boise State and Iowa State and spent two seasons in the aforementioned World League as an offensive line coach for the Sacramento Surge. And then when the World League became NFL Europe, he coached the Scottish Claymores from 1995 to 2000. Okay. Never heard of them. I've heard of them. It used to be for a while, if you had the uh, Madden game, they would include the uh, World League slash NFL Europe teams. Yeah, you see that, that that's during the era where I didn't really play video games oh, from about mis- from about ninety five until eh, pretty much about two thousand two or so. So that explains it. They had uh, they had NFL Europe teams in the PS two Xbox Madden era. Uh, I I'm afraid to admit this. I don't know how to say this, but um, I, I had uh, Madden 07 and don't remember that there. Because I think it has has gone by that time. Yeah, it was. But 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 also, the last Madden that I bought before two thousand seven was was Madden ninety four. So I totally missed that era where you totally where, did. Yeah, I missed that NFL Europe era in the Madden game. So I, that's why but I didn't that's ring an- a bell. Yeah, but that's another episode. Greg, continue. So next we have the Los Angeles Extreme. Their head coach Al Luganville was a head coach at San Diego State for five seasons and coached the Amsterdam Admirals from NFL Europe from 1995 to 2000. 
Now, guys, there was one notable player he coached uh, at Luganville in Amsterdam. Do you do you care to guess who that was? Because he was a big star at this time in 2000, 2001. It has to be Kurt Warner, I would guess. Yes, he was. Kurt Warner played in NFL Europe with the Amsterdam Admirals in 1998, the year before he had that Cinderella run where he became the starting quarterback for the St. Louis Rams after Trent Green got injured and led the Rams to Super Bowl 34. And the rest was history. Yeah, yep. and, a, and a, an interesting note about Al Luganbill, um, his son Tom Luganbill, who is currently on ESPN, was a quarterback's coach for the LA Extreme. And guys, guess who was the field analyst for today's? By the way, guys, in case you don't know, we're recording this the day the new XFL launched. Do you know who's the field analyst for ESPN ESPN's game today? Tom Luganbill. It's gone full circle. Yep. Oh, yes. So next you get the Memphis Maniacs. Their head coach, Kippy Brown, was a... Uh, Wide receivers coach at Memphis State, Louisville, and Tennessee. He was the running backs coach here with the Jets from 1990 to 1992 under Bruce Coslett. He had a bunch of other stints as Tennessee as a wide receiver coach. He was actually the coach, uh, running backs coach for the Miami Dolphins for 1997-97 and later won a Super Bowl as the wide receivers coach for the Seahawks under Pete Carroll in 2014. And a notable fact... In 1996, Brown helped running back Kareem Abdul-Jabbar become the first Dolphins running back to reach 1,000 yards in 18 years. And in 1997, Abdul-Jabbar tied a league 15 rushing touchdowns. Yeah, do you remember the football Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, guys? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's not the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that you know. Yeah, I remember him. He was a decent player. Yeah. And a notable fact, the Maniacs director of player personnel was Steve Ortmeier, who was the architect of the Super Bowl 18 champion Los Angeles Raiders. And last, we have the San Francisco Demons. Their head coach was Jim Skipper. He was the running backs coach for the Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars in the USFL from 83 to 85 under Jim Moore Sr. He went with more to the New Orleans Saints, where he was the running backs coach for 10 seasons from 86 to 95 and was the running backs coach for Arizona for a season in 96 and was the running backs coach for the Giants from 97 to 2000 under Jim Fossil. And by the way, Chico, a notable fact you'll love, he was the running backs coach for the Carolina Panthers in two different stints between 02 to 10 and 13 to 18 and was the running backs coach for your team's two Super Bowl appearances. Yep, sure was. And he helped make NFL history as two of his running backs, D'Angelo Williams and Jonathan Stewart, became the first set of teammates to ever rush for over 1,100 yards in the same year. Awesome stuff. Yep. So the broadcasting, guys. So we mentioned NBC was a 50-50 partner with the WWF in this league. So they had two games on Saturday nights in primetime. They had an A game and a B game. So for the A games, at least in the first week, you had the following commentary team. You had Matt Fast Scursion and Jesse the Body Ventura. Now, guys, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Isn't this 2001? Wasn't Jesse Ventura the governor 
of Minnesota at the time? Yes. But guys, did you know that Jesse the Body Ventura for two seasons in the late 80s was a color commentator on radio for the Tampa Bay Bucks? I did not know that. Nor did yes. I. No. And of course, Matt Faskirchen at the time, I think he was just like a play-by-play guy for the Brewers at this time, wasn't he? He was still in Milwaukee, right? The Brewers uh, or the Brewers. Padres, I would assume. Because uh, I thought, yeah. I, I'm I'm pulling it up. Hold on. Okay. Well, he was uh, yeah he was with the Brewers from '97 to 2001, and then he went to the Padres in 2002. So this was right before the last season that Matt Verscursion was doing play-by-play for the Brewers. Yes, and of course, Matt Verscursion will come up in future installments, Sports Geniuses, and another future installment, Baseball IQ. Those are not on the list. They will be by the end of the night. How about that? And in the B game, on which was mainly just the regional telecast in whatever team's market was playing. Like, for example, the B game the first week was Orlando-Chicago. So it would just be like the Orlando-Chicago markets. You had Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler on the B game. Now, Jim Ross, notably, it should be noted actually did have NFL experience. He was, for one season, the Atlanta Falcons play-by-play man on, uh, I believe, WSB in Atlanta before he went to the WWF. So he had a Saturday A game and B game in primetime on NBC. But for the weekend, you had a Sunday afternoon game on TNN and a Sunday evening game on UPN. Guys, what stations were the WWF broadcasting at the time? UPN and TNN. Yes, I think they they had been SmackDown was on UPN for at least a year and a half at that point, and TNN would have just gotten Monday Night Raw in probably about two thousand from USA Network in September. So for the TNN broadcast, you had Craig Mervini as the play-by-play announcer, who actually worked in the WWF in the late eighties as Craig DeGeorge. In fact. Craig DeGeorge will turn up in future installments, Herb Abrams Universal Wrestling Federation, and future installment, Roller Hockey International on ESPN. That's a a deep cut. Oh, yes. We're only beginning with the deep cuts, I think. Oh, but 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 Mike, you're going to be very excited when I tell who the color guy was. On the TNN broadcast. You ready? Oh, lay it on me. Bob Golick. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait. The Bob Golick from Saved by the Bell, the college years? Yes! That's that Bob Golick. <laughs> I have no words. Oh, boy. But, that, but on the UPN broadcast, you have. Chris Marlowe, who was, I guess from my research, some kind of volleyball player turned announcer. But that's not that's not the important part. The important part is who his cover guy was on the UPN broadcast. Are you ready for who his cover guy was? Who was, who was his, his color guy? guy? Brian Bosworth. Yes, folks. Brian Bosworth of your installment, Blue Mountain State. Okay, there you go. Mercy. Uh, so guys, that's not all. 
I have a fun fact I just discovered. Do you know who was a sideline reporter for the LA Extremes radio broadcast? Who was the sideline reporter for the LA Extremes radio broadcast? Super Dave Osborne. Shut up. Oh, that's great. I just hope he had Fuji on the sidelines with him. Could you imagine <laughs> Super Dave's giving like it? Imagine Super Dave's giving his sideline report and just randomly a player runs into him and he crashes into a wall and he turns into like a pancake. <laughs> oh, that's great. So when we think of the XFL's television presentation, we think of one notable thing that it gave us. The Skycam, or in this case, the X-Cam. Now, in the ESPN 30 for 30 doc done by Dick Ebersole's son, Troy Ebersole, called This Was the XFL, the lead football director at NBC, John Gonzalez, explained the idea of the Skycam to Vince and Dick, and they weren't sure what it was about until Gonzalez showed them a Madden video game and explained to them, hey, guys, this is what the kids are playing nowadays. If we want to get modern, if we want to do something that has never been seen in a football broadcast, we got to go, we got to use this kind of presentation because this is what the kids are into. Makes sense. Yep. And not only this, that, but they also had something called the Bubba cam, which was a guy on, on the field, usually in the huddle while a play was going on. And usually taking shots of the action on the field while all the play was going on. And Mike, we were talking about this before we started the episode. Because I showed you one particular instance in a week two game. I recall it. So there's a, ca- okay. so there a cameraman on the field. Just, just being on the field. Yes. And so in this particular instance in week two, someone who, who will not mention yet... But a running back on the Las Vegas team tries to go around the the cameraman on the field, and it results in like a 15-yard loss. Oh my god, really? This yes. is one of those cases of way too much, way too soon. And a notable thing I want to note about the XFL, all the stadiums in this league were completely grassed. There was no artificial turf. I don't think they had uh, invented uh, field turf yet, or I don't think it was really widespread at the time back in 2001. So every team in the XFL had grass on it. This was at the period where Giants Stadium, where the Hitmen played, used grass, because this was right after Jason Cena of the Giants got injured in the 98 preseason. And then a year later, Vinny Testaverde t- broke his ankle in week one in the 99 season for the Jets. So in 2000, they went to grass. So that's why they were playing at Giant Stadium in 2001 for the Hitmen. So they were all grass. So it was an all grass league. Field turf yeah, wasn't yeah, a thing no- yet. Yeah, and this was this was another thing Vince wanted to do. It, this is this wasn't some some pussy league where they play on an official turf. No, they play on grass. Damn it, because this is a gritty league. This is this is this, this is was for, supposed to be a callback to Smash Mouth football of old. Yes, this was supposed to be like defenses is, is the best, and and 
yeah, we're get, it's going to be rough and in your face and whatever. And what screams rough and in your face than what they did to start the game? Now, you might say, Greg, doesn't a football game usually start with a coin? No, 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 folks. No, no, no. In the XFL, they had an opening scramble for the ball. So what it was was they would place the ball at midfield, and they would have two players run a 10-yard dash and try to gain possession of the football. And if the team got possession of the football, they had the right to either kick or receive. They were making a big deal out of what was ultimately a glorified 10-yard dash. With a dive for a football at the end. Now, um, it was really cool when we when I first saw it. Then it gets kind of I don't know old, you know. Yeah, and by the way, I should mention, guys, the XFL's first injury resulted from the opening scramble in Week One. Orlando free safety Hashan Sami's Dean suffered a separated shoulder prior to the Rages. 33-29 to 29 season opening win over Chicago. And he ended up missing the entire season. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's not any good. No, it is not. But, but, not only that, but they had no point after touchdown kicks. Boy, those kickers did have an easy job, didn't they? Told you they had an easy job. Yeah, they just had to kick field goals. So after every touchdown scored, no extra point after the kicks were done. Due to the XFL's perception that an extra point was a guaranteed point. So to earn a point after a touchdown, teams would run a down from the two-yard line, similar to a two-point conversion. And actually, this was not a new thing because the World Football League actually experimented with this as the action point. And it was identical to a 1968 pressure point experiment by the NFL and American Football League used only in preseason interleague games that year. So, guys, we talked about the whole thing about how there were, like, no fair catches in the XFL. Right. Yep. So I'll explain the punting rules for a second. The XFL imposed a number of restrictions on punting that are not present in most other league rules. The net effect of which made punts in the XFL operate under rules more akin to kickoffs. The purpose of these provisions was to keep play going after the ball was punted, encouraging the kicking team to make the ball playable and the receiving team to run it back. To this effect, punting out of bounds was a 10-yard penalty outlawing the coffin corner punt commonplace at most levels of the game. Any punt that traveled at least 25 yards past the line of scrimmage could be recovered by the kicking team. Guys, remember that part when we get to the championship game. I'm going to remember that part. Yes. Thus, instead of letting the kicking team down the ball as is common in other leagues, the receiving team was required to try and return the punt or else lose possession. Also, the kicking team was prohibited from coming within five yards of the punt returner before he gained possession of the ball. This rule, known as the halo rule in college football and common in the CFL, was dubbed the danger zone in the XFL. Coming within five yards or less of the danger zone was a five-yard penalty, much in the same as the no-yards penalty in the CFL. Now, Mm -hmm. fair catches, of course, as we mentioned, were not recognized. So... 
basically it's kind of it's kind of misleading no fair catch because legally the player has to be within five yards of the receiver before he catches the ball mm-hmm. yeah so that that's kind of that's kind of a rip guys kind of sort of yeah yep so the play clock in the XFL used a 35 second play clock which was a little up from the NFL's 40 second play clock in an effort to speed up the game now well well games well but well in comparison uh, XFL games are shorter than NFL games by on average so yeah yep so now here's where we get to one of the notable parts about the XFL the jersey nicknames Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So the XFL would allow their players to wear a nickname on the back of their jersey. Beds thought that it would be a great idea considering that most professional sports leagues would have the back, just the name, last name on the back of your jersey. But Vince was like, you know what? I want my players to show personality, damn it. So I want the players to have nicknames on the back of their jerseys. Although... yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. That goes into what Vince has said about the XS, about the XFL. Like, well, the NFL was the no fun league. The XFL is the extra fun league. Well, the no, uh, the NFL is still the no fun league, if you ask me. But uh, I mean, this is a, a clever idea, and it sort of carried on to Major League Baseball the last three seasons with their players' weekend. Yeah, because. What's one of the best things about the players' weekend? The wacky nicknames on the back of the jerseys. The, 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 now, not just the wacky nicknames, but also basically every team is sort of wearing the same type of jersey, just different colors, uh, but the same font. But it gives them some personality, especially when you've got players in Major League Baseball nowadays. They have on the back of their names instead of their nicknames, they have emojis. Oh, yeah. Could you imagine if the original XFL lasted 20 years? We could have had, like, emojis on the back of the jerseys. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be too bad. So now we finally get into the first week of the XFL. And there was one notable player with a nickname that would be something that is remembered to this day. In the National A game between the New York, New Jersey Hitmen and the Las Vegas Outlaws, there was one notable running back that had a nickname that everyone remembers. His name was Rod Smart, and the nickname was He Hate Me. Everybody loved He Hate Me. (laughs) But, I mean, think about it. The name sells itself. He Hate Me. Why does he hate me? Who is he hate me? What does he hate me? What is... And the way Rod Smart responded is, he hate me, that guy hate me, everybody hate me. Yeah, it just sold itself. And you had your first... You had like an instant star born right there. And the thing is, America loved him. I mean, that was maybe not the best player, but by far, that was probably the most popular player in the XFL. Definitely the most personality. It's like, everybody loved He Hate Me. Yes. But, of course, uh, the first game you have 
massive ratings for week one. I think you had like something like an 11 and a half rating for NBC. But here's the here's the thing, though. The first game, the, at least the A game between New York and New Jersey was a boring game. I think the final score that I have the final score right here. It was Las Vegas over New York, New Jersey, 19 to nothing. And all 19 points were scored in the first half. In contrast, the regional game between Chicago and Orlando was actually an exciting game. I the final score was Orlando 33 to 29, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so yeah, you have you had an exciting first game between Orlando, but the problem was that wasn't really the national game. That w- it really didn't give a good first impression of the XFL when you see one team in New York, New Jersey who had a net passing yards of 144 yards. Man, those are like Christian Hackenberg and the AAF type numbers. Basically. Yeah. In week two, you have a notable switch. Now, in the XFL documentary from 30 for 30, Matt Baskerson talks about how, for whatever reason, Vince McMahon just was not a fan of the way Matt Baskerson called the game. So he had Matt Baskerson go to his limo and kind of like Vince is like, pal, uh, I got to replace you on the A game. I'm going to have Jim Ross replace you. Uh, You're you're just going to go to the B game with Jerry Lawler for a bit. Uh, until we can like figure out what to do. So yeah, you, you go there. And Matt Fascursion basically remembers it as, yeah, I kind of felt like, yeah, I wasn't good enough for the XFL if I'm if I'm being said, yeah, you're you're just gonna go to like the television equivalent to Siberia doing the regional game. That's tough because Matt Vasgersian is probably I would say one of the best, if not the best play by play people, regardless of the sport. Yes. And of, and of course, now, of course, Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN and everything. So now we get to week two. The A game, you have the Los Angeles Extreme against the Chicago Enforcers. Now, this was a notable game because, guys, this was at the period where L.A., of course, did not have professional football this time. This would have been, what, six years after the Raiders and Rams left? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have opening the crowd at the L.A. Coliseum to get the fans excited. Guys, do you want to take a guess? Oh, I'd say somebody like Whitney Houston. No, 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 no. Britney no. Spears. No. You, if you want to get people excited about this new football league, you have to call on the most electrifying man in sports entertainment, yeah, that's right. You turn into the you turn to the rock. Uh, oh boy, well he would have been a, a rising star in two thousand one. Yeah. So yeah. that yeah. makes that makes sense. Plus, this also was, obviously this was after the uh, legendary halftime heat, uh, a year after the legendary halftime heat, if I'm not mistaken. Well, two years after halftime heat with Mick Foley, that'll be a future entry down the line. <laughs> But um, yeah. So, yeah, and and also the Rock would have been in the Scorpion King at this time. 
So no, that's what I said. He's career. a rising star because he was, yeah, in the the Mummy sequel, the Scorpion King. Yeah. Plus, also, he obviously had a relationship with Vince in terms of being WWE property. Yep. So, okay, guys, L.A. Chicago. Do you want to know what happened during the game? Oh, something the must have pa- happened. What happened? Oh, guys, guys, you're not going to believe this. During the game. The power went out due to not because ha- somebody at NBC forgot to put gas in the generator. Whoops. So not only that, guys, but yeah, ha- but because of that, they had to in the meantime go to the B game. And Matt Faskersen talks about, oh geez, I had been told I wasn't good enough for the A game, and now here I am back to- back on national TV because the gas went out. What do we say about karma? It's a B. It's a B. Yeah. So because of that, and due to an injury on the field later in the game, the game was running late. And here's the thing. These games were on Saturday night in primetime on NBC. Now, guys, what's on after primetime programming on NBC? And after after the late late, Yeah, after the late local news, Saturday Night Live. Oh, and I, who I, would have been I, I'm host- sorry. Wait, I'm sorry. I had it's Showtime at the Apollo on my card. Oh, guys, no. Oh, that's no. after oh. Saturday Night Live. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So, who would have been hosting Saturday Night Live this week in 2001? It was the recent Super Bowl halftime performer, Jennifer oh. Lopez. Ah. Yes. Say this would have been around the time I think she was still dating Puff Daddy at the time. Yeah. Or maybe probably they were about to break. So, and I think this was also around the time he had those legal problems, if you remember. Yep. 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 I think we all we all remember that. So yeah. So needless to say, this was a heavily hyped episode. And he but here's the thing though. The game was tied after regulation. And they actually went to double overtime. And this is one thing I skipped because I wanted to talk about this. The overtime system was not really your traditional sudden death system. What it was was kind of similar to the NCAA in college where a team would start at the 20-yard line. And they would have at least four downs to try and score Uh a point or whatever or kick a field goal well now let's say for example like the first team is driving and you score in like two two downs or whatever yeah so so the opponent would have to score in the same number of downs or less i like that i'm sorry i like that yeah so let's just say on the first or like the first play of the drive a team scores a touchdown the same team has to equal that in the in one down, or else the game's over. Okay, that makes sense. You know, uh, sort of like su- it's it is the uh, it is lit- is the literal definition of sudden death. Yes. Yeah, a very modified version of the college rules, which I love, especially over the NFL current uh, overtime yeah. rules. I like. I, I really like agreed. it. Yes. So. So you have this exciting double overtime game with L.A. beating Chicago. And you have another instant storm made from this game. 
and that would be the LA Extreme quarterback Tommy Maddox, who at the time I believe was was largely considered like a cast off from the NFL. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, he was the first round pick of the Broncos, I believe, in 1992, maybe 93. But yeah, he was supposed to be like the heir apparent to John Elway in Denver, and he wasn't. <laughs> but yeah, th- this was this is a great way to revive his career because he did have a a brief comeback to the NFL shortly thereafter. But yeah, more about that later, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but, all right, so here's the thing. SNL runs late because of this exciting game. So, basically, Warren warned Vincent Dick, like the duck, to Noel Edmonds on cheap, cheap, cheap. Don't do this again. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm dead. That's horrible. Sort of. But here's the thing. Not really. But here's the thing. I mentioned in the first week how the XFL ratings were phenomenal. Like it had an 11 and a half rating. The XFL in week two got half the audience in week two. Still good, but not as great as the first week. But here's the problem. As the league Mm -hmm. went on, the ratings went down and down and down. And it didn't help that basically most people in the press basically ripped the league apart as low rent. Well, I don't want to say it was necessarily low rent, but yeah, when you're playing with players that can't make an NFL roster or maybe are past their prime, uh, yeah, that's that's not good. Nope, 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 nope. So one of the notable critics of the XFL was actually someone from within NBC. Someone who, notable at NBC Sports, but Dick Ebersole said, no, you, you don't really have to do this. And that was Bob Costas. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, you don't want to mess with Bob Costas at NBC Sports. Yeah. Um, now, guys, do you remember when Bob Costas had a show on HBO? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. So he had Vince on for about 30 minutes on his show, talking about how horrible he thought the XFL was. And basically, Vince was just, like, pissed at him, saying, oh, you, you're, you're, you don't know what you're talking about, and whatever. And just went up and got into space and pointed a finger at him. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sort of surprised this didn't end... The same way that Jim Roman and Jim Everett did. Oh, boy. Well, again, I, you're talking about Vince and, and wrestling. I wouldn't be surprised if if he was going to get confrontational about it. Well, the bottom line is, by the, t- by the, by the middle of the season, this thing was hemorrhaging. It was hemorrhaging. It was hemorrhaging out of control. Yeah. And it, yeah, it was hemorrhaging out of control, and it was a laughingstock of, of football leagues. Yeah. And in fact, guys, as a desperate ploy for ratings, they were they advertised on one week that they were going to go into the cheerleaders' locker rooms. Ooh. Ooh. 
Yes, and do you know how that how it ha- how this segment went? How did this segment go, Craig? Probably not very well, but not not no, it, not at all well, is it? No, no. In fact, it was a weird sequence where Vince was directing the cameraman. All right, all right, you're gonna go into the locker room and you're gonna get the cheerleaders. Are you ready? Go! And then the cheerleader bumps his head, and then there's this weird dream sequence with the cheerleaders. And then for some reason, guys, guys, I hope I hope you're sitting down, okay? This segment ended with, for some reason, Rodney Dangerfield coming out of the locker room wearing a towel, talking about how he gets no respect. What? Yes! Yes, I'm not even kidding you! Rodney must have been desperate in 2001. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, Rodney Coyer must need the money at this time. Apparently that ladybug's money doesn't go far. Not really, no. No. So now, all right, so we talked about how the league was just hemorrhaging money. The ratings were going down. But still, this league had to go into a conclusion. So we have to go into the postseason. So how did the postseason work, you asked? Well, you'd think, okay, eight teams, two divisions, four teams. You'd have to think the first and second place team in each division would play each other. And then the winners would play in the championship game. No. For some reason, the top team in the East, in this case Orlando, would play the second top team in the West, San Francisco. And then the top team in the West played the second top team in the East, which was Chicago. Now, there was one difference in the postseason. Now, remember how I said you had a one-point conversion at the two? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, they, I guess to add, like, some interest in the postseason, knowing ratings were down or whatever, they changed the rule where you have the option to go for a two-point conversion at the five-yard line or a three-point conversion at the ten. So in the first semifinal game between Orlando and San Francisco. Orlando had a 16-point lead after the first quarter, but San Francisco would score 10 points in the second quarter to cut it 16-10. to Then San Francisco scored two field goals in the third quarter to tie it. And then San Francisco got a field goal and an interception return for a touchdown. Yeah, Mike, I said it. It's an interception return for a touchdown. I didn't refer to it as the other title. Good. And an extra point in the fourth quarter to lead 26 to 16. So after San Francisco made it 26 to 16, Orlando got a late touchdown and got a three point conversion to cut the score to one. But San Francisco would hold on to prevail on an upset 26 to 25 victory. And in the other semifinal game between the extreme and the enforcers, LA dominated Chicago, beating them 33 to 16 as LA's defense got three interceptions and Tommy Maddox threw for two touchdowns. So guys, you'd think that this would be an exciting final. It's two California teams battling for the championship. You've stuck by this league all year long. You think maybe that you're going to have an exciting championship game. Guess what, guys? This was profiled on SB Nation's ongoing YouTube series, The Worst. And guess what? There was only one season of the original XFL. So you're going to guess that this title game was not good. 
So you have a 3 nothing game for the first quarter. L.A. gets a, a touchdown to make it 9 to nothing. They miss an extra point. So here we have a situation here where it's third and 31. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention by this point, Matt Beskirchen after week six was back as the A announcer replacing Jim Ross. So, okay, so the clip I'm going to play here is the score is L.A. 9, San Francisco nothing. San Francisco is deep in their own territory at third and 31. Now, guys, remember what I said about the punting how if a ball travels 25 yards, it can be recovered by either team. Yes. Well, maybe. So San Francisco, to try to catch the extreme off guard, decided to punt with the quarterback at third and 31. And, well, here's what happened. Well, they got nobody back deep, Los Angeles. I'm not sure if Mike Pulaski has this in his repertoire. Well, he does now. Third and 31. Quick kick. There it is. And it's a free ball. A flag on the play. Jimmy the Jet got in between them, but it's Reggie Durden to pick up. It's Durden to cross midfield. You talk about a backfire. You talk about a plan gone bad. We'll see what the flag means, but if the play holds up, it's 16-0 L.A. I'll tell you what the flag means. San Francisco did not give the Los Angeles return man a fair chance to catch the football. Violation of a five-yard bell, kicking team number four. That penalty is declined. The touchdown is good. Oh, man. Well, so much for my offensive coordinator moves. <laughs> so, yeah, as Matt said, this did not go well for San Francisco. Uh, like, I think, like, two players collide into one player from L.A., and then the number 21 in L.A. picks it up, and he just returns it his very way for the touchdown. It's a good rule in theory. Yeah, because... I- I mean, if a punt goes 25 yards, any team can recover it, regardless if the person touched it or not. And you want to try to catch them off guard. You want to get some offense going, San Francisco. But no, it did not go well for them at all. And the game just went downhill for San Francisco. They lost 38-6. to As a matter of fact, San Francisco would bench their starting quarterback and their backup quarterback got injured near the end of the game and got replaced by their third string quarterback who recorded their only score for a touchdown with like 30 seconds left. Ooh, not a good day at the office for San Francisco. No. 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 And with that, the LA extreme were the 2001 XFL champions. And do you want to know who the MVP of the game was? Who was the MVP of the game? The kicker, Jose Cortez. <laughs> he earned his 30000 that week. Oh, oh! by the way, we didn't even mention the championship game of the XFL was called the Million Dollar Game because the teammates split a pot of a million dollars. It was actually originally going to be called the big game at the end, but somewhere along the line... The XFL decided, no, 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 I, I think the million-dollar game is much better. Well, also, the big game is generally referred to the Super Bowl because 
because the NFL doesn't like uh, people using the word Super Bowl, or at least yeah. media using it. Yeah, unless, unless you're sponsoring or, or something, yeah. Yeah. You know, being that it's the million-dollar game and being the, with the WWF connection, I'm surprised Ted DiBiase didn't show up with a giant check, and then after the game, Virgil took everyone to the Olive Garden for some meat sauce and breadsticks. Ha! <laughs> Uh, oh, but geez. that would have been a great tie-in. Get Ted DiBiase to bring in the million. That would have been great. And then do the evil laugh after he gives them the check. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So, guys, the WWF and NBC lost a reported thirty-five million dollars on the venture, only recuperating Woo! about yeah, only recuperating about thirty percent of their combined a hundred billion dollar investment. Although paid attendance was respectable, if unimpressive, because overall attendance was only 10% below the league's goal had been at the start of the season, the XFL ceased operations after one season due to low TV ratings. Now, before they had to shut the league down, NBC said to Vince, you're not going to get a second season of the XFL. So Vince thought, okay, well, maybe I can try to continue it at UPN and TNN. So he asked UPN, hey, guys, would you be interested in a second season of the XFL? And UPN was like, sure, Vince, but on one condition. You're going to have to cut WWF SmackDown from two hours to 90 minutes. Oh. And that's not good because at the time, I, WWF was had this big deal with Viacom where they essentially got all the ad money from their deal with Viacom and losing 30 minutes of SmackDown meant they weren't going to get 30 minutes of that TV revenue of the ad money. So Vince was like, you know what? It's not worth it. Let's, let's just shut it down. And so on May 10th, 2001, the XFL was done after one season. Aww. Well, the original XFL. Yes, the original XFL, because as I mentioned, the XFL was profiled in Charlie Ebersole, the son of Dick Ebersole's documentary for 30 for 30. This was the XFL. And at the end of the documentary, Vin says to Dick, you know what, Dick, I've been thinking maybe it's time to bring the idea of the XFL back. And what do you know, later that year, Vince McMahon said in a press conference, guys, guys, are you ready for this? I'm bringing the XFL back. And I remember when this was announced, like, in the end of 2017, I was like, what? Yeah, but also, like, around the same time, you had the announcement that the AAF was coming. Yeah. So so now you had two competitors to the NFL coming. And again, the AAF is a separate show for another day. But uh, the one thing I got to give Vince and the XFL 2020 credit for, this definitely was not rushed. Vince took his time with the XFL, and you can see that he's making wiser decisions because the commissioner of the XFL is Oliver Luck, who is a former player, also father of Andrew Luck, who played for the Colts. Uh, and also, he has experience. Pretty, I, I believe he is a football coach. 
Um, Let me look. I, I, I think he was coached at Virginia. Let me take a look really fast. I believe he was an AD, I believe. So, yeah, he's the commissioner and CEO of the XFL, which is pretty lofty title right there. Um, President of NFL Europe. Uh, ex- he, uh, athletic director at West Virginia for four, five years. And the executive vice president uh, for at the NCAA before going to the XFL. And he got and his, I, and he got his JD from University of Texas School of Law in 1987. So he's not just a, an athlete; he's a pretty smart guy too. Yes. And I think Oliver Luck was the guy that instantly gave this league credibility, this new version of the XFL credibility, because it because Oliver Luck is coming from the NCAA. It's like when you heard that announcement, it's like, okay, they have to be serious here because Oliver Luck would not leave a cushy job at the NCAA if this league was going to be just one and done. Absolutely. Yep, they're they're definitely uh, thinking long term. And I saw the uh, reaction to the games that we had uh, today, and it's been mostly positive. Oh, yes, it's been very good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the first game. I didn't have a chance to see the second game, but this is definitely not the XFL of 19 years ago. No. I mean, you got you have ESPN, you have Fox, you have ABC, you have FS1. So unlike the AAF, which used you know CBS Sports Network, TNT, and had some of their games streaming on Breacher Report's app, you have like serious networks involved in this. And you've actually got pretty decent players this time. Uh, you've got some name players, maybe not superstar players, but at least w- when Greg and I were looking at the rosters uh, about a week or two ago and comparing them to the first uh, XFL's rosters, there are a lot more recognizable names. Yeah, I mean, you got Cordell Jones on the DC Defenders. Glenville in the house! Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's where I teach. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you have uh, Sammy. I was going to say you have Sammy Coates, the former Steelers wide receiver on Houston, and former Brown. But enough about that. Yeah. Yeah, Elijah Hood at the um, on the Los Angeles Wildcats. Tar Heel in the house. Oh, and by the way, there's another Tar Heel in the league, Chico. This is uh, Ricky Prohl's son. Uh, oh, Austin. Austin Prohl. Austin Prohl. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember that guy. Who scored the first touchdown He's... in XFL 2020 history. Yes. L- little little uh, trivia for later. Yeah. The, the, the first player to score a touchdown in XFL 2020 history came from what school? Duke. Shut your mouth. <laughs> Whoa. So, so, yeah, I think we can say, listen, we don't know if the new XFL is going to be a success or not. But I got to say, after the first day of games, we are loving what we saw so far. And the reaction online has been mostly positive. Yep. And the good thing about 
I'm sorry. The, the other thing I wanted to add, the head coaches that they got this time around, they didn't just get retreads from NFL Europe. They got some very good coaches, or at least coaches that have actually coached at the pro level, at the NFL level. June Jones, Jim Zorn, Kevin Gilbride, Mark Trestman. Each of those men has been a head coach at the NFL level. So they, they weren't like retreads from NFL Europe or arena football or whatnot. They, they got legitimately good coaches. And, and not to mention, we didn't even mention that the, the defensive coordinator for Mark Trestman is uh, Jerry Glanville. Himself a former head coach, but also that makes you wonder, Greg, did he leave two tickets at the will call window for Elvis? Well, Mike, I hope. Well, I was going to say, well, Mike, I hope in tomorrow's game between the Vipers and the Guardians at MetLife Stadium, some guy who does the will call at MetLife Stadium is looking at Jerry Glanville's request being like, Elvis, what the hell? Yeah, they don't get it. Do a Google search on Jerry Glenville and Elvis, and you'll get the whole story. So, guys, that's the XFL 2020, but the XFL 2001, you had opening scrambles, you, you had cheerleaders, you had no fair catches. You had Rodney you had Dangerfield. He, you had Rodney Dangerfield in a towel. You had... You had... Matt Vaskersian and Jesse Ventura. You had like yeah, yeah, the black King, and red balls. Yeah, the King, Jr. and Mike Adam Lee work at the same game, which was, let's be honest, strange. By the way, guys, Mike Adam Lee in WWE, that's a future entry. <laughs> <laughs> and Chico, you didn't even mention that Jonathan Coachman was also involved in the 2001 XFL. Of course, the coach was already in WWF at this point. And, of course, the coach has gone on to bigger and better things at ESPN and also now is doing the pregame on YouTube for the new XFL. So, yeah, we have, like, a, it, we have it's one come full circle. It's come full circle for the coach. You got to love it. But good Mike, for him. Good for him. But, Mike... Take us out, and then yeah. we'll get to what you said about, you know. Yeah, it had yeah. all of that stuff, and then it didn't have ratings, and Mike. Yeah. All that you mentioned, Greg, is great, but there's one thing that it was missing. What was that, Mike? People watching it. And that's yeah. why we finally look back at the XFL as just another thing on TV. Yeah. Woo! Yeah, so the original XFL, the 2001 version, we close the book on, but man, the 2020 version, if day one is any indication, man, I'm looking forward to what's to come. It'll be the new USFL, and I say that only sort of jokingly, because the USFL did get a good three years or four years length out of it. Hopefully it'll last longer than that, but... The the changes that I saw today and the games I saw today were very fun. So hopefully that continues and doesn't go the route of the AAF. Just as long as Tom Dundon does Tom Dundon doesn't buy into it just to fold it, I think we'll be good. Ooh. Uh, yeah, speaking of folding, another deep cut. Oh yeah, hey, Google it here. I'm not here to educate you, but I am here to tell you that we are on the web and it was a thing on TV.com. You can. 
There you will find past episodes, all of our social streams, and more about the show, more about us. We do kindly remind you that we are available where all fine podcasts can be streamed. Podbean, Apple Music, Google Play, the like, Stitcher. Can't forget Stitcher. Coming soon to Pandora, we hope. No, no, no we're, the- on, we're on Pandora. Uh, oh, no, yeah. Yeah, say coming soon to Pandora, but also we're on Spotify. Okay, Spotify, coming soon to Pandora, we hope. And of course, we gotta send a shout out to our good friends at the Place to Be Nation pop channel, who have hosted us so graciously over the past few weeks. Oh, and this might be of big interest to them, so hopefully they'll get some real mileage out of this. Well, hopefully they do, and hopefully we do, but... um. Yeah, so, yeah, just, again, like, subscribe, share. Don't forget to share our podcast, because sharing is caring. Yes. Boy, boy it seems like I've heard that before. Yeah, maybe once we'll got Well, guys, our next episode later this week. Mike, we're going to finally get into a subject that has been grinding your gears for years. I don't want to spoil it, but yes, I have a rant and oh, I hope people at networks are listening because I need closure. Guys at Buzzer, we know you listen to our podcast. You need to listen to our next episode because Mike, he needs closure on this one subject. He really just, does. Just, just do it this once, please. Just make Mike happy, please. That's all we ask. M- make Mike happier. You you showed Match Game Hollywood Squares last night with Bill Cullen. That made me happy. Make me happier. Yeah, the only thing that was missing was, you know, getting Dead Bigley's tortoise and giving Bill Cullen a segue so he could get to the other end of the stage. Jeez. <laughs> oh, oh, funny you meant. Funny you would mention that. And you know what? I'm just gonna leave it there. Uh, for Greg, for Mike. Uh, My name is Chico, our time's up, and we thank you for yours. See you next time with another thing on TV. You are... (laughs) Look what I have to go through. They told me to come clean. I tell you, when I played football, I got no respect at all. I shared a locker with a mutt. Yeah, I was a quarterback, and it was rough. I kept falling in love with the center. Hey, where's my wife? I can hit my wife, where is she?